2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, and I will invite you to stand again for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading verses 6 through 14. Second Timothy chapter 1, 6 to 14. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit... Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open your word and we hear your voice, I pray that you would strengthen your servants, that you would enable us to follow your will. And I pray, Lord, that as your word is spoken, that our hearts would stir within us to obey and to follow. Lift us up by the power of your word and through your spirit, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have been in this portion of 2 Timothy now for three weeks. When Pastor Jeremy began it, he did not anticipate it being a three-week series, but it has turned into it, and I think this section is worthy of the time that we've given to it. What I hope to accomplish this morning is to wrap up, in a sense, this section, and by looking at the whole section, I hope that even the parts that we've talked about in the weeks past will come into greater clarity. This is a powerful section of Scripture, and it is focused upon suffering. 
I was taught the four spiritual laws when I was in college as a way of quickly sharing the gospel. Very helpful, nice to have kind of a canned, packaged way of presenting the gospel. But I remember being told when you meet someone who's not a Christian, you want to start with this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I agree with that. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But that paints a picture to me of ease, of peace, prosperity, lack of conflict. And if that's what we're telling a non-believer, a non-Christian, I don't think that we're giving them an accurate picture of the gospel. When Christ called to the crowds, he said, if anyone would come after me and be my disciple, let him take up his cross. And a cross is a symbol of torment torture, persecution, and shame. And there is a very real sense in which you cannot enter the kingdom apart from suffering. And so while that suffering is ultimately a wonderful plan for your life, I would not want to give the impression that coming to Christ means your problems will be solved Everything will be easier, and everything that you wish for currently, you will get. The book of 2 Timothy is spotted throughout with references to suffering and to persecution. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. And let this shock you. Let, let this surprise you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How foreign is that to us today? How foreign in this country is it? When usually what we're told is, if you're being persecuted, it probably means you're doing something wrong. If you were just a little bit nicer, if you just don't focus on certain things, if you emphasize the positive, then you will have peace and people won't persecute you. But Paul doesn't really leave any wiggle room in this verse, does he? Indeed, truly, don't let there be any uh, debate. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That shocks me every time I read it. It causes me to question why not more persecution in my own life. Is it that I am not living a godly life? 
What's wrong? Paul leaves Timothy with a very clear expectation for the rest of his life. You will suffer and you will be rewarded. You will suffer if you live a righteous life. And if there's any doubt that that's true, consider the Lord Jesus Christ. How did people feel about him? At a distance, didn't they kind of like him? And then when he really brought home the message, they turned away. Not just did they turn away, they turned back in order to kill him. If the righteous, spotless Son of God was not loved but hated by the world, then what should we expect in our own lives? That everyone loves us? That everyone likes us? No. We're told to expect suffering. Now, before we jump into these verses, I want, to, I want to ask this question. Twice in this section, Paul connects suffering with shame. And he draws a line between the two. And I, I want to ask, what's the connection? What's the connection between suffering and shame? Look first in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, if you missed that. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but, so this is the alternative, don't do this, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So, if I look at verse 8 alone, I, I get the impression, may not be absolute, but it sure seems like the logical connection. If I'm not going to be ashamed, if I'm going to leave being ashamed, what will I get? Suffering. Don't be ashamed, but suffer. Share in suffering. And then again in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do in reference to the gospel, but I am not ashamed. So what's the connection between suffering and shame? How do they relate to each other? The idea of shame or being ashamed is the feeling or the sense that you've lost value or status. We sometimes use the word embarrassed, pretty similar. The idea of shame is a little weightier, it's a little stronger. It's not just, oh, I'm blushing, but no, I really feel that I've lost worth, value, or status. And by status, I don't, I don't just mean uh, social status or something like that. More of, you really have dropped in how valuable you are, rightly so. That's how you feel. Now, then the question comes up in verse 8, why would anyone feel ashamed? Why would anyone feel like they've lost status because of the testimony of Jesus Christ? 
That doesn't make any sense, does it? Look at Mark chapter 8. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy and look at Mark chapter 8. In verse 38, Mark 8, 38, listen to these words. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What Christ says is that if we are ashamed of him or of his words in this generation, what can we expect? That on the day he comes, he will be ashamed of us. Why would we be ashamed of his words? Normally we're ashamed when we do something wrong. When we do something that we know we shouldn't have, shouldn't have, that's sinful or corrupt. And when we realize what we've done is wrong, how do we feel about ourselves? In our view, what did we just do? Took a step down. We declined, decreased in our value or our status. Picture that you walk into your classroom, say it's math class, and it's the big day you're going to get your test back. And the teacher's handing out all of the tests, you flip yours over, and you see F. What, what do you feel? Do you look up and beam? <laughs> what, what do you feel when you see that? Don't you feel a sinking? Oh, you're probably thinking something like, I can't believe I did that poorly. When you see the grade that you got, what happens in your own mind about your, your evaluation of yourself? Don't you decrease? Don't you feel either that everyone's going to think I'm not smart or I'm not smart or I'm not worth as much that's a sense of shame. I'm ashamed of my performance on the test. So when we do something wrong, we are right to feel ashamed. There's another way that we can feel ashamed, though. You may not have thought of this. Maybe it's the first thing you thought of. But we can be ashamed not of ourselves, but of others that we're associated with. Classic example, mom in the grocery store. <laughs> you see the kid pitching a tantrum, kicking and screaming on the floor, and what's all the mom do? You at least hope she does. Oh my goodness, I can't believe he's doing this. I feel so ashamed. Why? Because that's my boy, and he's acting like a brat. And that causes me to drop, to decline. Or consider a biblical example, Peter. Why did Peter deny Jesus Christ three times during his trial? 
It was because he felt ashamed. But why? He knew that Jesus was the Christ. He knew that he was the Son of God. He even said, Lord, where else can we turn? You have the words of life. What happened in the trial is that everyone around, everyone in that vicinity said, Jesus is evil. And Peter believed it. Maybe just for a moment, but he believed it. So that when someone said, hey, aren't you one of the Galileans who were with him? He says, no. Why? Why would he do that? Because he believed the lie about Christ. He accepted as true the lie that he should be ashamed. Now let's connect these two. How does suffering and shame connect? Why are we persecuted? And what does that mean? When we suffer, what are we being told? I'm not talking here about general suffering, uh, sickness, uh, perhaps low temperatures. I'm not talking about general suffering. I'm talking about that suffering which is connected to your faith, to your righteousness. When you are persecuted, what are they telling you about what you believe? They are telling you, you're believing a lie. You're wrong, and because of it, I'm going to make you suffer. If your teammates mock you because you won't join in the post-game debaucheries, or your coworkers slander you because you insist on being honest, if your neighbors ostracize you because you actually discipline your children, if a fellow believer avoids you because you hold to an unpopular biblical truth, they're persecuting you and telling you you have lost status because you're wrong. You're wrong. And therefore, in my eyes, you sink. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And if you believe their lie, what will you feel? You will feel shame. So there's an inherent link between suffering and the temptation to be ashamed. Whenever you're persecuted... Whenever you suffer for doing what is right, the temptation stands in front of you. Believe that you are actually wrong. And if you buy that and accept their evaluation, then you will be ashamed. But Paul says very clearly, do not be ashamed, but share in suffering. So now that we understand that relationship, Let's look at the specifics that he says. And I want to ask three questions. And we'll be brief with each of them. What is the cause of our suffering? What leads to it or brings it about? And second, I want to ask, what comfort or consolation do we have in our suffering? 
Third, what is it that we hold on to? What are we committed to in the midst of our suffering? These three questions I want to look at. First, what is the cause of our suffering? The cause of our suffering may surprise you. It's actually God's grace. The cause of our suffering is God's grace. Look at verse 8 again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Why are we suffering? For the gospel. In verses 9 all the way down through 11 or 10, he explains what the gospel is. That's the reason we suffer. Well, what is the gospel? Is it a burden or is it a grace? Isn't it a grace? When you are preparing for a game, if you are on the football field or the basketball court, what do you have to do before game time? Don't you have to practice? And when you're in the middle of your practice and coach says, we're doing another round, and everyone says, oh, my legs are sore. What does the coach say? Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to hurt you. Has there ever been an athlete who excelled because he didn't suffer? If you want to be able to lift more weights, if you want to be, able to, if you want to be stronger, what do you have to do? You have to hurt. You have to suffer. What was the saying in the 80s, I think it was? No pain, no gain. Well, that's, that's true in a lot of ways. I remember in math class, <clears throat> usually around the quadratic formula, people would start to say things like, my brain hurts. It's good to know you have one. But I would always tell them when they said that, that means you're finally using it. You can't get stronger muscles without having your muscles hurt because you've used them, right? There is no way around it. And so suffering is like spiritual exercise. It is what causes us to grow in our dependence on the Lord. Now, Paul gives both a, an immediate cause and an ultimate cause for our suffering. Immediate and ultimate. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on either of them. But the immediate cause of our suffering seems to be Jesus Christ and the testimony about him. And secondarily, Paul and the testimony about Paul. And so the suffering goes something like this. Or the shame. What Jesus Christ said and what he did is wrong. That's what the world is telling you. You believe it, therefore, you're wrong. Now, our temptation is to say, oh, maybe they're right. He did die. Could that many people really be wrong? The Jews, his own people, were crying out for his blood. 
And so what Jesus Christ did and what is taught about him is the immediate cause for the shame and the suffering. And Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't believe the lie that they have told. The second part, the ultimate cause, kind of the foundation of the suffering, is not just the testimony about Christ, but it's how we relate to it. Look at verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I want to turn just briefly to Luke chapter 4. And I want to show you that our election, which Jeremy uh, explained last week, and I'm not going to explain all over again, but our election, the fact that God chooses some not because some are better, but that God chooses some because of his own purpose. So that no one on the final day can stand up and say, hey, I get some credit here. So glad you saw how good I was, God. Thank you for choosing me. Nobody will boast on that day except in the grace of God. But I want to look at Luke 4 and look at verse... Uh, starting in verse 24. And this is Jesus teaching, and listen to what he says. It's pretty remarkable. Verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Huh? What, what are you talking about? How does that have anything to do with it? Jesus says, you remember Elijah and how there was a, a, a drought for three and a half years? You know how many widows there were in Israel? Many. How many widows did Elijah go to and take care of? One. That is the doctrine of election personified. He did not go to every single widow, but to one. Was it because she was better? Of course not. Now look at their response. Verse 28. He says the same thing about the widow Naaman. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. When Jesus explained God's choice includes the Gentiles, the woman in Sidon, and the man who was a Syrian, and he chooses whom he wills for his own purposes, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. 
And so there's a real sense in which the fact that God has chosen some is a cause for the rest to hate them and to persecute them. So the cause of our suffering is God's grace. It's because what God has done for us, we are then persecuted for. It's not because of our, uh, hopefully it is not, but it should not be because of our bad attitudes, our quirky personalities, our failure to do what we're supposed to do. That's not the cause. The cause is the grace that God has poured out on us. Now, the second question I want to look at is, what comfort do we have in our suffering? And the answer is God's power. God's power. Look at verse 13 and 14. Well, just 13 to begin with. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. The reason I'm not ashamed is because of who I have believed in. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And that phrase, he is able to guard, is the same word, he is powerful to guard. That is, he's able to, he has enough power to do it. And so it's the power of God that gives us comfort. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I know that what God has begun in you, the good work that he has begun in you, he will be faithful to carry out until completion at the day of Christ. What's our confidence and our hope, our comfort in the midst of suffering? Who brought us into this deal? Who called us to this life? Who called us to this suffering? And it's not coincidental that at the end of Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For you have been chosen not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. So why am I suffering? Because I messed up? If it is, there's not a lot of comfort in that. Your comfort is that God will redeem it. But if you're suffering for righteousness' sake... then our comfort is that God brought us into it. And he will use that like spiritual exercise to cause us to grow into the image of his son. And even his son, it is said in Hebrews chapter 2, was made perfect through suffering. Can Can you believe that? Even our Savior was made perfect by what he suffered. So why are we suffering? To be made perfect like him. To be refined. To be cleansed. And to share in his suffering. The third, our, what is our commitment or what do we hold on to? And the answer is very simply, we hold on to God's word. The commitment in the midst of our suffering is to God's word. Look at verse 13. He says it in two different ways. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So number one, follow his word. Follow his word. 
and in 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard his word. Follow his word and guard his word. And I I, want to end with this. I've listed some explanation of those. A2, avoid godly discussions as a typo. Avoid ungodly discussions. You might want to write that down. (laughs) But I want to end with this. Look at uh, verse 12 again. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's powerful to guard literally my deposit. You go into the bank and you make a deposit. And what do you expect that bank to do with your money? Protect it. And what Paul is saying is, I have entrusted myself, I've deposited myself with the Lord. And the reason that I have comfort in the midst of suffering is that I know he is strong enough to keep it, to guard it. You with me? Then when he gets to Timothy, he says, Timothy, you guard the good deposit given to you. So what is our responsibility? God will guard what he has been entrusted with. God will guard our souls. And our responsibility is to guard his word. And ultimately, what that means is everything else that Paul says in this book. It's how to guard and follow his word. But in the midst of our suffering, we don't just bear up. We don't just get through. We hold fast to God's word. And as we do that, our suffering is then put to use. We are made more like Jesus Christ And what will that lead to? More suffering. And then as we suffer, we hold on to him and are comforted by him, which will make us more and more like his son. So in conclusion, I just want to share Paul's words from this same chapter. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a calling to which none of us is worthy. And there is a real sense in which we We're hesitant about this suffering. We don't look forward to it. We don't long for it. But we do accept it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be ashamed of your son. That on the day he comes, he would not be ashamed of us, but that he would delight in calling us friend and brother. I pray that you would give us the strength to cling to your word in the midst of our suffering and so be found faithful at your coming. In Christ's name I pray, amen.